When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Crisis Management, the podcast edition. I'm Alicia Sikirska. We're now more than halfway through the federal election campaign, one that has been full of promises and lots of policy announcements. There's one from the Conservative Party that may be the first of its kind used in a major global economy. The Tories have promised to launch something they call Super EI. Here's how it would work. If a province goes into a recession and sees a 0.5% increase in its unemployment rate, EI benefits would automatically increase. Politicians wouldn't even have to vote to approve the boost. Then, after three straight months of job gains and the recession is over, EI levels would return to normal. This is something that's called the SAM rule, a policy created by former Federal Reserve economist Claudia Sam. Bloomberg News first reported this story, explaining if the Conservatives win and this policy is enacted, Canada would be the first major economy to experiment with this tool. On our live stream video program, Sean Spear from the Public Policy Forum and I talked about the SAM rule and whether it would be an effective tool in responding to something like the COVID-19 pandemic. If you could just bear with me, I'll try to be as um, minimally wonky as I can. Um, you know, the basic idea here is that we build hardwire into legislation uh, what are sometimes referred to as automatic stabilizers. So the idea is if there's a recession or an economic shock of some sort, rather than governments having to scramble to pa- introduce legislation and pass legislation to establish emergency measures, they would be um, legislated in advance so that if a recession happens or a pandemic or some other kind of economic shock, those emergency provisions are already in place and can be rolled out more quickly. And I think, you know, given the experience of the pandemic, I think there's a strong argument for this kind of idea. It would it would have saved us um, days, weeks, even months um, to get out um, uh, emergency support to, to individuals and and households. Just a couple of caveats. The first is not every recession is the same. Um, you know, this one, for instance, disproportionately affected, at least initially, women in the service-based sector, whereas the 2008-2009 uh, recession disproportionately affected men in the goods-producing economy. So there are some kind of limits on how much you can hardwire into legislation and prejudge the outcomes of any given recession. So in other words, there's going to have to be a mix of automatic policies like this one and still room to um, have more responsive policies that reflect the particular circumstances of recession. The second point I would just make quickly, Alicia, is the other change that needs to be um, considered with respect to employment insurance is not just making uh, more generous benefits automatic in the event of a crisis. The fact remains that a significant share of Canada's working population isn't eligible for employment insurance, either because they, they, they haven't worked for the uh, same employer for sufficient time to be eligible, or they may have, um, they may be gig workers with kind of multiple jobs that um, cumulatively don't qualify for EI benefits. The, the reason that we had to move ahead with the CERB in the context of the current recession or the past recession 
was because um, it, leaving it to EI would have meant that a significant share of workers in our economy would have been covered. So all this to say, I think it's a really interesting proposal. I do agree that we ought to be pursuing it just with a couple of caveats that it's, it's not a silver bullet. We're still going to need um, a broader set of changes and some kind of recession-specific policies um, to ensure that um, no Canadian is left behind in the event of the next economic shot, whatever it is that uh, brings it about. As Sean mentioned on the show, these automatic stabilizers could avoid having to legislate solutions in emergency situations. But there are other changes that need to be addressed. After we wrapped up the live show, I asked Sean about responding to recessions and what other issues need to be dealt with now to help us in the future. And a quick heads up, you may hear a little guest appearance from Sean's newborn. Well, what's interesting, Alicia, is that after the 2008-2009 financial crisis, when the then Harper government, of which I was a part, implemented its economic action plan to both address kind of emergency effects on individuals and households, and then also to try to stimulate a return to economic activity. When that was over, we conducted a kind of post-mortem to see, you know, what worked and what didn't and, and what you might um, draw from that experience for future recessions. I think one of the most interesting insights for me personally was that there are real limits on our ability to um, universalize um, um, recession responses, that each recession has kind of unique character and unique dimensions that may limit um, the ability to, to reach kind of general views about how to respond. So to be concrete about that, as I mentioned on the live stream, the 2008-2009 recession disproportionately affected male workers in the goods producing part of the economy. Um, listeners will know, for instance, that Canada, the Canadian U.S. governments, um, had to significantly intervene um, in the auto sector. This recession has been different. Um, the, the effects have been disproportionately felt by those industries that um, operate on a face-to-face -face basis, so restaurants, hotels, stores, retail stores, and so on. The workers are, are, you know, are by definition different, and so the response has to be different as well. Um, in 2008, 2009, a big part of the government's response was to invest in infrastructure. Um, for instance, that's not really going to be our way out of, out of the current recession. So I don't want to leave the impression that I don't think this idea of trying to build some automatic provisions um, into law so that we can respond on a more expedited basis to economic emergencies is a bad idea. I just think that there are inherent limits to that because we still need the ability to respond to the unique particularities of a particular set of economic circumstances. Yeah, and I think you saw that with this pandemic where part of the response was increasing benefits, uh, EI benefits. But as you mentioned on the show, the issue was there were so many people that were out of work that didn't couldn't qualify for those benefits, which is why we introduced CERB. But part of the critique, again, on CERB is that it was too broad and, and people could qualify for it that didn't necessarily need the help and it just you know ended up boosting their savings. How do you look at how the government responded here and in that specific approach, but then also keeping it as general and broad as possible to catch the most amount of people? Do you think the response should have been more targeted? If I can address that specific question in a moment, let me just go back to something you said at the beginning, which is um, that the reason we did serve was because employment insurance had come to 
um, underrepresent a, a significant share of the labor market. This is something that list, listeners may not be familiar with, but when EI was established, you know, the labor market kind of functioned in a, a, a kind of typical way. People work nine to five or they work shift work, but they work for a single employer. Oftentimes they work for that same employer for a long period of time. And so EI was designed with that kind of employment arrangement in mind, and it covered the vast swath of Canadian workers. Fast forward to 2021, a lot of people don't work like that anymore. And so as a result, they're not eligible for EI because they're not accumulating enough hours or they're not working for a, a single employer or, or any other number of reasons. And so, you know, the last data I saw, Alicia, was something like 40% of Canadian workers actually aren't entitled to employment insurance. So in the event that we have a widespread recession with huge labor disruption like we did, the problem is EI can't do what it's supposed to do, which is to step up, step up and stabilize incomes because so many people um, aren't eligible. So, you know, the, the first thing I would say is, you know, whoever wins the next election, you know, one of the major takeaways from the pandemic-induced recession is that we need to modernize EI and solve for this problem. Incidentally, the Conservative Party has made some commitments around fixing EI for gig workers, and that may be a good start, but I'm, I'm not even sure that fully covers it. We really do need to bring EI into the 21st century. So how do you begin to do that? Well, it's, it's a great question um, for which I admittedly don't have all the answers. I do think that there are economists and labor policy experts that are thinking about it. A big part, um, Alicia, may be what's known as a portable benefit. So um, rather than having benefits like EI specifically linked to your employment with one employer, it, it may come in the form of a more portable, flexible benefit that um, reflects um, the, the experience of so many Canadians where you're, you're actually accumulating hours amongst different employers. So, and I think that's part of the answer, but, um, and, and the, the Trudeau government to its credit, I think acknowledged, um, you, you know, during the pandemic that, that there was going to need to be um, bigger changes to, to EI. Um, and, and so, you know, as I say, I think whoever is elected, this will be amongst the kind of top of the list in terms of post-pandemic policy reforms that are going to have to be enacted. And then just on your question about could CERB have been more general, or pardon me, more targeted and less general, it kind of comes to this question around targeted and timely. I think, you know, they, the, the government traded off targetedness in exchange for timeliness. Um, and I think that was probably the right call. I mean, you know, one of the consequences, of course, as you say, is that people probably received it that shouldn't have, um, or, 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 you know, who may have been, circumstances may not have been as challenging as, 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 as some others. Um, but parsing that out um, in, in something like this extraordinary pandemic where our economy, you know, shut the door kind of overnight would have meant that a lot of people fell through the cracks. And so I, I think in this particular case, anyway, Alicia, I think the government's choice to prioritize timeliness over targetedness was, was the right call. So in just kind of circling back to, to where we started this conversation with having these kind of economic indicators tied to certain policies, there's still going to be a need kind of looking by every unique situation to address them. Because as you said, 2008 was so different from what we saw through 2020 with the pandemic recession, that there's still very much going to have to be those timely and targeted policies implemented anyways. I think that's right, but it doesn't mean that there's not something here. Like, you know, the, the, the example that often comes to mind is the um, ill-fated vote uh, in Congress on the TARP bill 
years ago, um, listeners will remember that, you know, for political reasons, Congress voted down that bill and it caused the markets to tank. And I think one of the lessons that a lot of policy observers in the U.S. um, reached at the end of that process was if you could kind of hardwire into legislation some specific provisions that would take effect in response to certain economic metrics, whether it's a decline in employment or investments or whatever, it would prevent against that kind of politicization that risks making making things worse. So that's a long way of saying embedding some of these automatic stabilizers into law preemptive, preemptively, I think is a good idea. And, you know, I think the Conservative Party should be lauded for putting it on the table. I, I just think it it can't be the totality of our response to a future crisis um, for some of the reasons that we discussed on the live stream and, and today on the podcast. Well, John, uh, thank you so much for your insights and to your guest host for joining us for this episode. Thanks, as always, for having me, Alicia, and, and I'll, I'll pass that on. <laughs> okay, thanks. That's all for today. You can find the latest video episodes of Crisis Management on the Yahoo Finance Canada website or on YouTube by subscribing to the Yahoo Finance channel. If you'd like to hear more of the exclusive content in this podcast, make sure you subscribe. Thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.